0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to tonight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. This week, I spoke with Dr. Jim Clark, a professor of history here at the University of Central Florida, and we primarily focused on his 2014 book, A Concise History of Florida, uh, with chapters specifically um, related to Florida politics, as I thought it was a pretty fitting idea to have a little crash course history um about Florida politics since the major political event happening right now in Florida is uh, the midterm elections so i thought it'd be thematically fitting to have this conversation and to have this week's podcast uh, focus on that like with most things i truly believe that having a history and historical context is imperative and powerful to better understand and appreciate the current climate that we're in and it's no different with politics and I'm I'm very honest and I'm always honest off mic on mic. And my questions are very direct because and I let him do the talking because this is in a, a subject area where I am the most comfortable in the sense of knowledge, not comfortable in the sense of talking about it, because clearly I'm comfortable talking about it, um, talking about it right now. And, you know, it was no one's decision to to make this week's podcast uh, thematically fit with the current events. That was my idea. So um it's just I don't like I, I'm not the type of person that likes to talk when I don't know. So I just sit back and let Dr. Clark do the talking and kind of educate me as he as he can. Um and that's that's what I kinda wanted to say in the intro because there is a difference. If you listen to all the other podcasts, I'm kind of more involved. But this one I I didn't feel comfortable being more involved because again, I I, I don't want to seem like I know what I'm talking about when in reality, I don't know. And I'm, you know, I think that's, un, I don't think that's honorable as a scholar, as a person. You know, there, there's different roles when it comes to that. You know, there's the active role in the sense of act being actively involved in a conversation. But there's also just the, the more the more observant role, you know, sitting back and really soaking in all different perspectives and understandings. So then you could take that active role later on. It's kind of like a a two step process. So, this is more of my observant role that you'll be seeing in this podcast where I'm just asking questions, not kind of really having a bounce back, natural, dynamic conversation response. But yeah, those are some of the things I wanted to talk about in this intro. So, enough of me talking. I just wanted to make that very clear before you all go listen to this episode, which again, I think it's very important, like all the other episodes. Um, But if you're a Floridian and you're listening to this, just to have a little bit of crash course history to better appreciate, you know, when you're going to the polls, because I think no matter what your political standing is, voting is important. So, um, enough of me talking and cue that music. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast. I have with me here Dr. Jim Clark, a professor of history at the University of Central Florida with specific research interests in Florida history, the U.S. South, and presidential history. Dr. Clark is the author of the book that we'll be discussing throughout um, our conversation today, A Concise History of Florida, which was published in 2014. The chapters and historical topics from the book that we'll be covering in this podcast are will be Florida and its politics, and using that imperative history and context to better understand the current political event that is happening right now in Florida, which is the midterm elections. I also want to note that Dr. Clark is a new six political expert who has been featured in several of their articles. I'm very excited to have you here, Dr. Clark. So how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing awesome. I'm excited to have you here. Um, So I I just told you this off mic, but I'll say it, like I said, on mic so our listeners could better understand the conversation that we're about to have. So, all the questions and topics of conversation in this pod will be, pro- broadly speaking, providing historical context for the 2022 midterms. But I want to present you and our listeners the, the outline that will be guiding us throughout the pod. So, the first set of questions will be more historical questions that are grounded in the 19th and 20th centuries and how the political landscapes of those eras are similar and different to today. And then the second set of questions will be more on modern history. Uh, questions and topics so primarily talking about florida politics from the dawn of the 21st century up until when your book ends 2014 and in the final we'll close out the pod with the final set of questions um which is from 2014 to the present presenting direct um a direct context and prelude to these um this year's midterms elections so sounds good sounds very good awesome all right so my first question to you is um right from Florida's inception when I was reading, um, chapter eight of that, of your book, which was, um, the territory of Florida. Uh, I found it really interesting that the, one of the first stories in that, in that history was, um, you know, politics was still at the center of that story, you know, in the sense of with Andrew Jackson being the provisional governor and how he believed that it was kind of a power, a political play to cast him out. So the public eye, you know, don't see him, and then he's not as a strong positioning for the 1824 presidential election. So can you um, expand on that?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, Jackson is named uh, territorial governor. Strangely enough, we have a city named after him, Jacksonville. We have a county named after him, Jackson County. And Andrew Jackson hated Florida. He uh, only came here to kill people. Uh, twice he came here to either kill British citizens or, or uh, Native Americans. And when he was named territorial governor, the only reason he took it was that he thought he would be able to name some of his military buddies to state positions, uh, sinecures, if you will. And so uh, he thought he could build a base. Washington said, no, we're going to uh, name everybody. You don't get a say. And with that, he quit, and he was only territorial governor for a few months. And he left so quickly that by the time the president responded to his resignation letter and said, okay, but could you stay a few more months till I replace you, he was already back in Tennessee. So uh, his uh, his stint as territorial governor was short and unsuccessful.
0: Right. And also um, something else that I found interesting— within that chapter and also with your answer right now was um, there was sort of a, you know, international politics, if you will, in the sense of there was still a heavy Spanish presence, British presence when Jackson first arrived here and he was trying to get them out as well, right?
1: Yeah, he had trouble uh, uh, kind of getting the Spanish out. At one point it looked like there would be another war, uh, and uh, that was avoided But uh, clearly, he was trying to get rid of the Spanish influence primarily. The British were only here for 20 years, and they had a profound effect, but it was uh, uh, an effect that uh, Jackson liked. They brought slaves in, the cotton plantations, so Jackson was comfortable with that. What he was not comfortable with was Spanish Florida. Right.
0: Right. I might be butchering the the name here, so you could correct me if I'm wrong. But can you explain to our audience the the significance of the Levi father and son duo um, in early Florida politics?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, the Levy family, Yulee family. Mm-hmm. It gets a little bit confusing, but the father came here uh, and uh, from Morocco, of all places, and wanted to set up uh, a kind of uh, almost nation settlement, whatever you want to call it, for Jews. Uh, Even at that point, Jews were being discriminated against in Europe, and uh, he acquired 50,000 acres in north-central Florida and wanted to create a Jewish colony. Uh, That failed. He was not able to attract people, but his son ended up being the first Uh, senator from Florida when we became a state in 1845 and the first Jewish senator to serve in the United States Senate. What's confusing is he changed his name. (laughs) And so (laughs) we end up with things named for him that are different names. For example, there's the town of Uh Yulee and there's a Levy County Mm -hmm. uh, named for the same guy, but with different names.
0: Why did he change his name?
1: You know, we don't know. And there's been a lot of speculation about that. Um, you know, why why did he do that? And he never said during his lifetime, and uh, but he did. And it's kind of remained a historical mystery.
0: So you're stating in the book that, quote, if there was any politician who symbolized early Florida, it was Richard K. Call, end quote.
1: He was kind of the the founding father, if you will, of Florida, uh, as part of the United States. He was the one who pushed for statehood. Uh, there was uh, We became part of the United States in 1821 and did not become a state until 1845. Uh, we had to wait until we had enough people and for Congress to approve our Constitution and to let us in. And throughout this, uh, Call was the territorial delegate to Congress, non-voting, just like the District of Columbia or Puerto Rico have non-voting delegates, um, and he was able to use his uh, abilities in Washington uh, to get us made a state.
0: What were some of the lessons um, that we could take from Florida's early politics, um, if any, You know, from when it was a territory and then also when it was a newly acquired state in 1845?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, we were very much like every other southern state. Uh, We were very pro-slavery. Remember, we were only uh, in the Union 15 years before we left to join the Confederacy uh, from 1845 to 1860. So we were very much Southern. Uh, uh, The politics were pro-slavery and uh, not much different than Georgia or Alabama. Remember, Florida was a very small state up until World War II. We were the smallest state in the, in the South in terms of population. Uh, South Carolina, Arkansas, Alabama, and Mississippi had more people than we did up until the Second World War.
0: All right, so transitioning from early Florida to a chapter in your book specifically titled Florida Governors, 1868 to 1950, Can you explain to our listeners the broader historical and political trends and trajectories that were happening in the state during that time period?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, after the Civil War, we go through a period of Reconstruction with the rest of the South, even though we played a very minor role uh, of the 600,000 Confederates, only 15,000 came from Florida. We just, again, didn't have that many people. Um, And so after the war, As with other southern states, we elect Republican governors uh, under the direction of the the government in Washington, and it's not until 1876 that what amounts to the former Confederates, the Democrats, retake state politics, and they are very much in line with the southern states. So um, several of them are former Confederate soldiers and uh, who— believe still in the Confederacy some of them are are still fighting the Civil War as late as 1900
0: I want to transition now a little bit to um and we're closing in on our first set of questions so our listeners can know um, to a, a chapter in the book titled Florida politics from 1848 to 2014 now for the sake of the podcast conversation we're gonna table the the 21st century, to the other set of questions to the other set of questions, and we're just gonna primarily focus sure. on essentially the second half of the twentieth century. We can start off with how from eighteen forty eight to nineteen ninety eight, every Florida governor was a Democrat with the exception of Claude Kirk and Bob Martinez, who both were Republican and were governors from nineteen sixty seven to nineteen seventy one and nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety one respectively. Um, Explain what that means in the context of that time period um, and how that cemented and affected Florida's politics during that time.
1: Yeah. Uh, Florida was, uh, like the rest of the ex-Confederate states, was strongly Democratic. Uh, There was almost no Republican Party in Florida up until the 1950s. And then a congressman, Republican congressman, was elected from St. Petersburg uh, and This was also during the period of civil rights legislation, and the Democrats in Florida were extremely conservative. And they were actually more comfortable in the Republican Party, even though they were Democrats. So even though we had Democratic governors, today we would consider them conservative Republicans. Uh, It was just kind of an anomaly back then. Uh, And so in, uh, in 1966, Claude Kirk ran for governor. Nobody thought he had a chance, but as they often do, the Democrats splintered that year. They nominated somebody who was uh, from Miami, uh, who had no support in North Florida, which he needed. Uh, he was viewed as kind of a liberal, and and Kirk won, to the surprise of, of many people. Uh, Bob Martinez also won. Uh, when... Uh, Claude Kirk won, you could only serve one term, so he was out after, um, would be out after four years, but we passed a constitutional amendment to allow governors to serve two terms. He was defeated uh, by Reuben Askew after one term, and then Bob Martinez was defeated after one term by Lawton Child. so um, the Republicans were not that dominant up until the late 1990s.
0: Can you explain to our audience the significance of the pork chop gang in Florida Uh, politics?
1: Yeah. Up until a Supreme Court ruling in the 1960s, Florida was very uh, badly apportioned. And by that, I mean that uh, Liberty County in North Florida, with a population of 6,000 people, had as much clout in the Florida legislature as Miami-Dade. So the panhandle uh, controlled the legislature. These were very conservative Democrats. They were kind of under the influence of a man named Ed Ball, who was the heir to the DuPont fortune in Florida, very powerful, and he basically got to run the state uh, through these people. Finally, the Supreme Court issued what's known as the one man, one vote ruling, which said, no, you can't have that kind of thing. And the pork chop gang broke up and lost their, uh, their influence.
0: And um, what were some of the more n- notable governors during that time period in, from 1948
1: to 1998? Yeah, we had a, a strange collection of, of, uh, of governors. Uh, a guy named Fuller Warren. Uh, I think wanted to have presidential aspirations and uh, was very colorful. Uh, he Unfortunately for him, he passed the first sales tax in Florida and that doomed him. Uh, uh, you'd go into a store and they would have a jar there and uh, it would be uh, pennies for Fuller Warren. And you'd put your sales tax money in the big jar, uh, so people would see that every time they they went to the store. So um, he faded pretty fast, uh, and uh, any hopes he had for higher office were were dashed. Uh, we had a governor, very good governor uh, McCarty, who died in office, very unexpectedly, and uh, the the man who replaced him came from the legislature who succeeded him uh, was a guy named Charlie Johns, who I think everybody agrees was just uh, a terrible uh, governor. He uh, had formed what was called the Johns Committee in the legislature, which went after people uh, kind of like Joe McCarthy did on a national scale, and scores of college professors lost their jobs, uh, state employees either because uh, Charlie Johns uh, said they were, you know, left-wingers or uh, exposed them as being gay. And so uh, when that term ended, he ran for governor and lost to Leroy Collins, who everyone says is the greatest governor in the history of Florida. He was no liberal, certainly, but he was very moderate during this period of turmoil with uh, Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement starting. And he guided Florida through what could have been a terrible time, much as it was in Alabama and Mississippi and other southern states. We did not have uh, the violence that they had.
0: I know you mentioned um, in the Porkchop Gang answer um, dynamic, but I would like um, for you— to further elaborate on the dynamic between North Florida and South Florida and how that affected the state <laughs> you politics.
1: Know, you know, uh, the people who were running Florida in the 1830s and early 1840s envisioned us as being two states, uh, the panhandle and the peninsula. And that might have been the best idea. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, for those people, Uh, The issue of slavery was becoming prominent. And to satisfy everybody, states were being admitted in pairs, one free and one slave. So we were paired with Iowa. And uh, although there was opposition to Florida from people who said we'd never have as many people as Iowa. um, And so uh, the, the peninsula has always been different. Than what was originally known as West Florida, the panhandle uh which was always extremely conservative uh and the rest of the state uh was more uh progressive
0: so now we're we're gonna be transitioning to our recent history questions, so essentially from two thousand to two thousand fourteen, and you know that started off with Jeb Bush. Being governor from 1999 to 2007. But before uh, diving into Jeb Bush specifically, um, I want to know your thoughts on this because, you know, I, I find this fascinating and an interesting inflection point in Florida politics. Um, as from, you know, the dawn of the 21st century, there have been only republic governors. And, you know, that's total inverse from what we just discussed in the 20th century. So can you explain that phenomenon?
1: The Republican Party has been ascendant in this century, uh, as you point out, beginning with Jeb Bush. uh, As late as four years earlier, uh, in 1994, he lost the governorship to uh, Lawton Childs. But then, four years later, uh, Childs, of course, uh, had died in office. Uh, The Democrats were disorganized, and he became governor. And since then, We've had a succession of, of Republican governors, and you know that may not change. Uh, for a long time, we were considered a purple state. Could go either way. Uh, remember, just four years ago, Andrew Gillum came within 33,000 votes of being elected governor. And uh, now uh, the Democrats don't seem able to really mount a challenge.
0: From Bush, we go to... Um you go to Christ and then who was governor from two thousand seven to two thousand eleven and who is now challenging of course Governor DeSantis uh in this year's midterms uh for governor, but running as a Democrat. So first this is twofold. Can you explain to our listeners Chris run as governor in those four years and then now this shift that he's in right now?
1: Yeah. Chris had a really uh tough time because his term was marked by the, the collapse of the housing market in 2008. And the economy of Florida uh, tanked along with uh, the rest of the country. But in Florida, along with Nevada, uh, it was particularly bad. Thousands and thousands of people lost their homes. Um, there were bank failures. Uh, people lost their jobs. And he had to deal with uh, cutting the state budget, raising taxes, all of those problems which hurt his popularity clearly uh and so uh uh, and then he got he became convinced uh that he should go to the senate and uh it was kind of a mess actually uh and it's it's shown by the fact that he has run for office as a republican as an independent and now a democrat uh and uh uh, he has not won a statewide race in 16 years, uh, but and he's run for Senate, for Governor. This is his third run for Governor, uh, and he's only run one one time. So, uh, and then uh, in a fatal move for a Republican in Florida, uh, after an oil spill in uh, the Panhandle, uh, Barack Obama came to the state and. Uh, Chris gave him a big hug, and conservative Republicans said no no we we don't like you anymore and uh and he lost uh and so now he's trying in this election to come back
0: right so now we're we're approaching our our last set of questions, which is specifically um giving context and a prelude to this year's midterms elections so and this is kind of cool um because it gives you an opportunity to fill in the rest of those blank pages per se of the 2014 book. So you finished the book off with Rick Scott being governor from 2011. And of course the book ends in 2014, but he ended up running the second term until 2019. And then, um, then we have governor DeSantis, who's the current governor now from 2019. Um, and now he's in this year's midterm elections going for his second term. So, um, can you explain Florida politics from 2011 until now, so these past 10 years, which may seem a lot, but briefly?
1: Florida very much has become uh, the state of, of the outsider. Um, uh, you take Chris, uh, he had served in the legislature, he was attorney general, kind of working your way up, if you will, and that was kind of the way Florida politics worked. You were expected to go through hoops and then you would be, a, be the governor. Uh, Then, as you point out, Rick Scott came along, a very wealthy businessman with no political experience. And he jumped into the primary with Bill McCollum, who, again, had been one of these people who paid his dues. He had been a congressman. He had come back to Florida and been elected attorney general. And everybody thought he would surely win the nomination. But Scott defeated him and then won the governorship. So uh, then, after he served eight years, the assumption was that Adam Putnam, the state agriculture commissioner, would be the Republican nominee, but, uh, and he had served his time in Congress, come back, served eight years as agriculture secretary, uh, and everyone assumed he had it. And then Ron DeSantis jumped in, who had been in Congress but was unknown to nearly everyone in the state, but he had Donald Trump's endorsement. And so he came from absolutely nowhere to win the governorship. So you don't need any more to to pay your dues in Florida. I think that's the message.
0: And how do you think his term in these three years have shaped him now for these midterms?
1: Yeah, he's had some really good breaks, unlike... Uh, Chris, who we talked about, the Florida economy has been booming. And not only is it booming on its own, but because of the pandemic, Washington has given Florida billions and billions of dollars. We almost have too much money. So he's been able to launch initiatives that other governors have not been able to launch. Uh, I think he has surprised some people First of all, with his environmental stands, uh, he's been very pro-environment. Early in his term, he gave uh, uh, pardons to the Groveland Four, who had falsely been accused of uh, sexually assaulting a woman in uh, uh, Lake County 70 years ago, uh, and that surprised some people. Uh, So uh, he has made some good decisions. Clearly keeping Florida open when other governors were shutting down during the pandemic has worked in his favor. Uh, People are applauding that now. So he has made some good decisions, and he's been very, very lucky with events happening around him.
0: I read a News 6 article, um, Click Orlando article, that was posted this Monday, actually, and it featured you, and it was talking about the loss of three hundred and thirty one thousand voters from the Florida Democratic Party. Um, you know, by now we in this pod, we've explained some of the historical trajectories that have led to that point. But can you explain the ramifications of such a loss in um, in Florida and the future of the party in Florida?
1: Yeah. I, this is historic from 1845 until last year. What is that? One hundred and seventy years. Mm-hmm. There were more Democrats than Republicans. Now, suddenly, there are more Republicans after 170 years, whatever it is. This is an amazing transition. And the Democrats uh, have been unable to stop it. The party uh, is kind of a mess. Uh, Every couple of years, they elect a new party chair uh, and fire the old guy. uh, And they don't have a very good bench. And it shows in the election this year Here, their nominee is Charlie Crist, who, again, has lost his last two elections statewide. Uh, This is his 18th election. (laughs) He's been around forever. And the cabinet uh, nominees are the weakest in history. Uh, There's just no one running who excites the voters and is going to be able to turn out people. Uh, And so it's going to be interesting to see if the democrats can develop a bench uh you know to, for 4 years from now people to come off and and attract attention and really lure voters to the polls
0: can you walk us through um we've been we've been hammering the governor um side of things now in this podcast but can we uh can you walk us through some of the other people on the ballot and other some of the other initiatives on the ballot
1: yeah um the other people on the ballot there, we used to have a much bigger cabinet. They've eliminated education commissioner and an elected secretary of state uh, who could be a reigning fo- force for the governor. For the governor to do something, he had to have cabinet approval. Uh, today, we have only three uh, cabinet members, the chief financial officer, the attorney general, and the agriculture commissioner. The agriculture commissioner is Nikki Freed, the Democrat, who is leaving office and will certainly be replaced by a Republican. And again, the the Democrats came up with three extremely weak candidates who have been unable to raise any money. Um, They are going to be outspent by better than 20 to 1. Uh, And Florida is a very expensive state. To run for office. There are, what, seven television markets. Three of them are in the top 20, which means they're expensive to buy ads, and uh, these people are unknown in most of the states. So uh, it's it's unfortunate that people are going to vote and not even know who these people are.
0: Right. Can you explain um, where the metrics stand for uh, Marco Rubio and Val Demings?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Val Demings is a congresswoman from central Florida, from Orlando, former police chief who is challenging Rubio, who's been in the Senate now for for 12 years. And, uh, you know, the problem uh, Congresswoman Demings has is the rest of the ticket. Uh, It's impossible for her to carry the entire Democratic Party. And that's basically what she's being asked to do. In the public opinion polls, she's running ahead of Charlie Crist, but I'm afraid it's not going to be uh, enough simply because there's no enthusiasm this year for the Democratic uh, state ticket.
0: So that kind of leads me to my next question: Where we're five days out from the general election day, so where, and you could take this wherever you want to, um, whether it's general or specifically, but where do the the metrics and the numbers stand in the polls right now?
1: Yeah. Uh, Governor Crist has opened up a wide lead. Uh, I hate to say Hurricane Ian was good for the governor because it was such a horrible tragedy. But if you'll recall, uh, early October, when the hurricane struck, uh, the governor was on every TV station. You couldn't turn on the TV without seeing him. And Charlie Crist almost disappeared during that time. you know he couldn't command he couldn't command television time and and get on to talk about the hurricane so uh it really helped the governor he was able to look uh strong and uh he was able to look compassionate the biggest rap about him has been that he's a bully uh whether it's true or not people have said it and he was able to show compassion he involved his wife in the uh the rescue efforts and the coming back efforts. So um, this has really been a boon to him. And early on, he was ahead by four or five points, and now he's ahead by 10 or 11 points. And remember, this is a guy who didn't even get 50% of the vote four years ago. He got, what, 48%. So um, this has been a sea change both for him and for Florida.
0: My final question for you today, Dr. Clark, is what is the significance of these midterm elections, not only for Florida politics, but um, broader U.S. politics?
1: Yeah. The the question is, what is Ron DeSantis going to do two years from now? Is he going to run for president? Some people say he'll challenge Trump. Others say no, he won't. Um, uh, he's only, what, 44 years old. So in theory, he could run— 20 years from now or even 30 years from now. But the problem is six years from if he waits and doesn't run in 2024, six years from now, he'll be out of office and won't have that base as governor, which has allowed him to have tremendous national presence. He'll be a former governor and former politicians uh, don't get a lot of attention and people aren't going to want to give as much money to somebody who can't help them. As governor. So uh, I think he has a tough decision to make whether to run. Uh, we don't even know for sure if uh, former President Trump is going to run. Um, you know, th- the public opinion polls tell us that uh, pre- former President Trump is losing a little bit of popularity gradually every month or so.
0: Those are all the questions I have um, made for this podcast for you, Dr. Clark. I I just want to thank you for not only um, taking the time out of your day to talk to me, but also answering answering all these questions as great as you did. Um, Before I end the podcast, um, any final thoughts or words you have for our listeners?
1: Uh, Tuesday will be fascinating because the danger for the Democrats is that if the statewide ticket is weak, so-called down ballot. Uh, Democrats may be in trouble Members of the state house Members of the state senate uh, Who are Democrats May lose their seats In what could be A Republican tsunami
0: All right, Dr. Clark That is all the time we have Today all the questions I have made for you I want to thank you again for taking the time Out of your day to talk to me I really appreciate it My pleasure That was the pod I hope you all enjoyed it I hope um I hope the biggest takeaway is just that you have a better understanding and appreciation of Florida politics whether it's directly related to this to this year's midterm or not um it's still important to know you know one of my one of my favorite quotes that I've come across honestly in the past 4 months and it's really I've come across it because I've been doing this job is from Senator Bob Graham and this quote is In one of his op eds, which I can't remember right now, but it's in "Writing for a Public Good" um, book by Dr. Stephen Knoll, and I mentioned it in that podcast, which is episode twenty. So go check that out. The quote is: "Quote, democracy was never intended to be a spectator sport." End quote. I love that. Um, I think it's absolutely true. So don't go. So don't be on the sidelines. Um, this voting season and go vote. It's the reason why our this you know democratic experiment we call in the United States of America exist. I hope this podcast just gives you a better understanding and better appreciation of the history of Florida politics, especially if you're a Floridian listening to this. So please subscribe to this podcast feed to hear future conversations about history. For Knight's History Cast, I am Sebastian Garcia. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you all on the next one. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.